If you don't have good enough parenting, there's what's called insecure attachment or insecure wounding. Because the attachment wounding happens pre-verbally and is so intertwined with even the way that we perceive reality, doing talk therapy is pretty ineffective because it didn't happen on the verbal level. And so the insight was that contemplative practice, like visualization and meditations, go below that cognitive or verbal level. So actually doing contemplative practice over and over was like relaying a different perceptual framework. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. My guest today is meditation teacher Jessica Mori. Jess leads secular and Buddhist meditation retreats across the U.S., and she's also the co-founder and lead teacher for Inward Bound Mindfulness Education, also known as IBME. That's an organization that offers in-depth mindfulness training for teens and young professionals. Jess began practicing meditation at age 14, and she has deep training now in both Vipassana and Tibetan traditions. In recent years, she's been approaching the contemplative path through the lens of attachment theory, which comes from developmental psychology. We get into the details a lot more in our conversation, but basically the idea in this theory is that the earliest bonds we form as children with our caregivers can have a tremendous impact on other relationships throughout our life. I caught up with Jess last fall, and we dug into how she's currently thinking about these modes of healing. She first shares her long roots in the contemplative path. As I mentioned, she started meditation when she was quite young. And we talk about her own experience with meditation retreats as a teenager and how she eventually co-founded IBME to offer these retreats more widely. Then we get into Jess's interest in attachment theory. She gives a frankly amazing overview of the basics of the theory. It's probably the clearest I've ever heard, actually. And she shares some interesting contemplative approaches to healing attachment wounds. We talk about the subtle body and trauma, developing embodied safety, grounding practices with the earth and land. And that takes us into a discussion about ancestor work and why it's important to examine your own lineage. Jess also touches on benefactor practices and other links between Buddhism and attachment theory. And we wrap with her reflections on the joys and opportunities of working with young people. As always, there's links for more in the show notes, including to some practices that Jess mentions in our conversation, like imagining your perfect parents. And I'll also add, if you or someone you know is between the ages of 15 and 25 and is interested in learning more about mindfulness and meditation, I highly recommend checking out the retreats offered by IBME. I've had the great pleasure to attend some of them as staff myself, and they are amazing. So definitely check out their offerings on their website. I've long been interested myself in attachment theory and how it intersects with contemplative practice. So I really love this conversation. I also appreciate how personal and vulnerable this gets. And I wanna thank Jess for modeling that vulnerability. It's not always an easy thing to do in a public space. I hope you enjoy her warmth and wisdom here. It's a great pleasure to share with you, Jessica Mori. 
Okay, well, I am so happy to be joined today by Jess Mori. Jess, welcome, and thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Wendy. I'm so happy to be here with you, too. Excited. And thank you for joining us from your closet. <laughs> with the excellent sound. You're welcome. <laughs> so I, I always love to start by hearing kind of people's backstories and how they ended up doing the work that they did, how you got interested in contemplative practice and the path that's mm. taken you here. So if you want to share some of that. Yeah, totally. Happy to. My mom is a contemplative. I'd say that's probably like where it started for me. Um, originally, she was she was actually a nun, a Catholic nun, for nine years oh, wow. before leaving the convent and deciding to have a family. So she definitely raised us with a contemplative perspective our whole childhood within a Catholic tradition, primarily. But then she used to go to the Insight Meditation Society when we were kids. And go every year, she'd do at least a 10-day retreat at IMS in the 80s. Uh, and so when IMS started a teen retreat, the first one was 89, she sent my sister. At the time, I was 12, so they said I was too young to go. So I went on my first teen retreat when I was 14, which was in the early 90s. And this is at the Insight Meditation Society, which is in Barry, Mass. It was founded by Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield. Mm -hmm. So, wow, when you were 14, that's quite young to start getting into these practices. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I don't know. I think probably if there was past life, if I think about a past, I could tell a story of there must have been something past life. Uh -huh. Because even younger, my mom would go to her friend, this man from India who, she was a public school teacher. And his wife taught at the public school with her. And she would go to their house on weekends and meditate with them. And I would beg her to let me come. So I remember being, I was eight years old when I first went. But what I remember is I think I, you know, they had a meditation room. I sat down. I probably sat in silence for like three minutes. And then I, sure. I pulled open my library book, which had like all the crinkly plastic covering. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Shakti, it was his name, he like reached over and was like, maybe you should take that just right outside into the living room. <laughs> so I definitely was really curious and drawn to practice. And as soon as I went to the Insight Meditation Society, I was all in and I kept going back every year. Do you remember what um, in those early days kind of, I don't know, drew you the most or what were you in particular fascinated by or excited by? Yeah. Initially, I think seeing my mom, how she would be when she would come home from retreat. I think there was something about that, like noticing the shifts in her that had some impact on me. What kind of shifts did you see? Uh, definitely more at ease, mm. happier, kind of lighter. My parents got divorced when I was two. So she was a mostly single mother of four kids. And we were all within five years of each other. And then she worked full time as a teacher. So... You know, I just think about that now. It's like insane what her life must have been like and the level of stress. And so those 10 days we'd go, I guess we'd be with my dad for those 10 days. And when we come home, it was just like just the lightness and the ease mm. and the happiness I think I would see was pretty dramatic. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think that, that's probably the very earliest and what inspired me. And then going to IMS, what I remember was like, the first piece was the kindness, the kindness of the staff mm -hmm. and the safety, this feeling of safety and kindness that was 
at the Anti-Meditation Society. Mm. I think even the first year when I was 14, I'm not sure what was even happening in my meditation. I think it was much more that I was just picking up on the environment. And then what I would see, too, is that kindness, like, translated into my own mind. And my brother went with me, and he struggled a lot as a young person and all through his life. And the transformation in him, like, his kindness would grow so much, and it would last when we got home. Like, he'd take out the trash without being asked. And Mm. so I just could feel the goodness of the space. And then as I got older... I got more into, like, what was happening in my own mind. And just this, like, I could feel. I think I had experiences of just, like, peace and ease in my own mind that felt really good. Yeah. So your path took many turns before you've ended up now as a meditation teacher. So do you want to share some of that as well? Yeah. I did the teen retreats every year. And then when I was 18, I graduated from high school, went to the teen retreat, was planning to start college in the fall. And I had this, like, um, it literally felt like hearing a voice in my head while I was meditating one time. I was like, go to Burma. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of the other staff were had been to Burma. You know, there's such a strong connection with the teachers in Burma. Mm-hmm. So I just decided right there and then that I was going to go to Burma. I don't think I had any conception of what that meant. Right. But I deferred college. I saved money. I bought a plane ticket. And so went and practiced in Saida Upandita's monastery in Rangoon for the next year. And then another monastery. And then I went to India and saw the Dalai Lama, went to teachings by the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala. So I kind of had that, that year of practice and spiritual commitment and went back to college. So it was like I knew that practice was pretty central to me, but went back to college I got a degree in engineering and basically went on into a career on, in climate policy and clean energy mm-hmm. finance and was living and working in D.C. And at that time, folks who had been my mentors when I was a teen started a teen retreat in Virginia, like through a series of connections. Mm. And so wrote to me and said, hey, Jess, we're in we're going to Virginia to teach a teen retreat. Like you should come down and help us out. So that was 2007. So I just took a week of vacation, drove down. And at that time, it was like 10 teens. And my main job was like to clean the bathrooms. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Just a, a question that, uh, yeah, I, ha- I had never thought about. But you did this whole career in, in engineering and um, climate policy. You already were so committed, like unusually so, I think, for a young person to practice in this contemplative life. Did you ever think about kind of doing that as a career mm-hmm. or was that just a separate personal thing? Yeah, I did. I mean, I totally remember being in Burma and part of my time there, I was practicing with my teacher, Michelle McDonald, and she had been the teen retreat teacher. I totally idealized her and definitely had these thoughts of like, when I grow up, I want to be Michelle. Mm-hmm. I want to be like Michelle. That was my dream and fantasy. I also was aware that I didn't want to like have some ego connection to teaching. So I had some idea that I I wanted to go out and live in the world, have a career, maybe have a family, and then later in life maybe teach from that. Like how do you actually integrate practice deeply into life and then teach from that? Mm -hmm. But more importantly, when I was in Nepal, a Kopan monastery, I did a Tibetan retreat 
And there was a what they called a psychic monk who you could, mm. they said to all of us, you could, you could go meet with this monk if you wanted to. You could have an interview with him. He was very old at the time. So I met with him and I went in and I said, uh, you know, I want to be a nun. I was like, this is it. I'm going to, I'm going to ordain, especially because seeing how um, Tibetan monastics lived, because you could touch money and they're just a lot more compatible than like the Theravadan monastics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I said this, I'm like, this is what I want to do for my life. And he just looked at me and said, no, (laughs) (laughs) you should go home and work is what he said. And then he said, maybe later in life. And at the time, I was devastated. It actually felt like a rejection. I was like, "Yeah, I'm going to give up my life for the Dharma. Like, This is what I want to do. And you're telling me no? Like, go back to right. school and get a job? But I re- it really took it to heart. That like stuck with me when I went back and felt like, I think part of it was I felt like, wow, that means whatever work I do in the world needs to be like valuable enough that it's worth not being a nun, mm. which felt huge. So it also was a, a bit of a weight. I was kind of always thinking like, okay, yeah, how am I going to contribute in the world that's like more than just practicing the Dharma? Yeah. Right. So I'm sorry, you were in the Virginia. You met up with your yeah. friends and started that retreat. Yeah. Yeah. So we, it was Virginia, 2007, and we had like 10 teens and did this first retreat. And it was so... I hadn't been on teen retreat maybe for eight or nine years since I was 18 or 19. And it was so fun. It was just like immediately reminding myself of how powerful and important they are and the impact, seeing the impact on the teens. So they started getting them going again in Virginia and kind of pulled me in, helped set them up. And then all of this was actually being run under the, uh, a different nonprofit and it wasn't really going that well. Oh, and also, actually, it was being funded by this one businessman, an amazing mm-hmm. bodhisattva. And the financial crisis of 2007, 2008 happened. So he couldn't, mm. bef- he was just paying all the bills and he couldn't really do that anymore. And so we knew that we needed to make a nonprofit. We needed to learn how to fundraise. We needed to kind of, if we wanted to keep doing this. So we made, we decided to make an organization, a nonprofit, which finally we got set up in 2010. And that's Inward Bound Mindfulness Education? Yeah, that's Ivy Me, Inward Bound Mindfulness Education. And so even at that time, by then I was teaching. And also even the teaching that I was doing was because one summer, one of the teachers was sick. She was supposed to come out and get sick at the last minute. So they just were like, hey, Jess, do you want to, will you teach? And so that's how my teaching career started. (laughs) And then I was just thinking, I'm on the board. I'm going to help set this up and get it established. But I was really building a whole career in D.C. around climate policy and finance. And mm-hmm. I've always felt super committed to environmental work. Um, so at that time, I thought, I'm just I'm just someone who shows up and helps however I can, and I'll help on the board and the org set up. And then that changed. Famous last words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you ended up running that organization for many, many years. Yeah, exactly. We had hired a... Um, executive director to run it, this really charismatic, who was at the time, young man. And about two months after he started, he went into heart failure, hmm. which came out of nowhere. I don't, I don't know that they ever even really figured out what was attacking his heart. He was in a coma, an ECMO machine for about eight months, needed a heart transplant. 
And so wow. it set the organization into chaos. And my friends who were involved with it were like, Jess, will you quit your job and <laughs> take over? And I, it was a couple of times that I was like, uh, no. Right. I have two master's degrees. I, uh, I have health insurance. You know, I'm right. well paid. But it was a little bit when I looked at it, kind of like the Buddha story of like the messengers, the heavenly messengers. Mm -hmm. Because this guy, Jesse, was 28, 29. We were about the same age. And I met my now husband at that time, who was 30, mm -hmm. and he was just recovering from uh, lymphoma, stage four lymphoma, mm -hmm. where he had almost died. Mm -hmm. And then my roommate and very good friend got diagnosed with leukemia. Oh my gosh. And needed to go through chemo and have a bone marrow transplant as well. And so we were in that process in the hospital with her, you know, managing, keeping the house totally clean for her. And then my brother um, was really not well. So it was just all these things together. I think I had that idea like, oh, later in my life I'll teach or I'll focus my life on Dharma. But for now I'm doing this other thing. And then it was this really clear example of like, wait, there might not be a later in life. Right. Because all of these people were late 20s, early 30s. So it's kind of like, okay, if this is like what feels most valuable, important to me right now, like this is what I need to do. And it was, it was like, there's no question being on teen retreat was the absolute best time of my year. So it was just that reflection got me to, to quit. And it was so scary. I felt like I was jumping off a cliff. Wow. And there's so much to say about Ivy Me and your time there. The organization grew and now has teen retreats all over the country, all over the world. Yeah, it has teen retreats all over the U.S., Canada, the U.K., um, or, I mean, pre-COVID. Yeah. So, of course, now there's a whole process of getting them going again and figuring out, but then also a ton of online programming. Right. And then you've just recently transitioned out of leadership mm -hmm. of that organization, and now you're teaching full-time? Yeah. So I left leadership in August of last year. So it's just about a year, over a year now. Uh -huh. Ivy Me. And then I just teach. I teach the teen retreats. Yeah. And then otherwise I'm teaching. I just finished the Insight Meditations Society teacher training, their four-year training. So I'm teaching at IMS and Spirit Rock and yeah, kind of a little bit. I call it my mid-career retirement. I'm a little... <laughs> <laughs> a little bit trying to figure out exactly how I'm going to focus time and energy, but doing it's all around teaching and Dharma. Well, I want to come back to um, all of your experience in working with teens and youth around contemplative practice, because I think it's such a unique space. But first, I want to dig into um, something that I, I think is so unique about your approach to practice and interest right now in practice, which is you've really been incorporating attachment theory from psychology into the way you think about practice. Do you want to unpack some of that? Mm -hmm. Maybe at first, like the basics of attachment theory and then how you see it being relevant? Yeah. So my interest in attachment theory 
began about probably 10 years ago. I've been doing therapy my whole life and different kind of um, therapeutic approaches because of my own childhood. Obviously, it's such good fortune and privilege to have been introduced to practice so early, which I think is huge in my uh, development and well-being. And also, um, I come from, on both sides, uh, lots of alcoholism and, mm. and I would say significant trauma, both in my own childhood and in both of my lineages of my parents. And so it was pretty clear to me that just meditating was not going to fix my problems. That was getting pretty clear. And um, one of my Dharma friends, a man named George Haas, uh, introduced me to the concept of attachment theory. And so I started working with him. And he had a whole meditation approach to healing attachment wounding. So the primary, um, say maybe the, the framing of attachment theory is that uh, humans, when we're born, are totally dependent on adult humans to survive and probably, you know, at least like eight or nine years or something on some level. But mm. certainly those early couple of years, infants and small children would utterly not survive. So the theory is that biologically we develop these attachment behaviors between adults and children so that we would be protected and cared for. And also because our brains aren't developed so that we could communicate in some way or have our needs met. So in a healthy attachment system, caregivers for the infant are fiercely protective of that child and they're present, reliable, consistent. They attune to the child so they can see they're tracking like what the child's feelings are, what their thoughts might be. And this is particularly when they're preverbal. So one, two, three years old, how do you figure out that they, the child is hungry, cold, uh, needs their diaper change? You need an attuned parent who's tracking and starting to understand the child. And then it moves on to soothing and reassuring. So when the baby cries or gets hurt, a young child, physically soothing and reassuring so they feel safe. Then these next two are kind of later, what I would think of as later developments, but they basically help the child establish self-esteem and exploration of the world. So one is expressed delight, which is that the parent is like constantly, they're expressing to the child how happy they are to be their parent. And I love seeing that when I see parents act in that way. Yeah. And the final one is that they're, they're supporting and championing that child's development. So they're tracking like, what is this kid interested in? What are they drawn to? You know, maybe they're really into music. And so then the parent supports them to take music classes or something like this, even as a young child, independent of what the parent wants. Right. Maybe the parent's really into sports, but that doesn't matter. They're tracking the child. So it's this sense of uh, being protected, being deeply cared about. So there's this unconditional support that you have. And in your very being, you can express who you are. And so if you have that, you end up secure. We call it securely attached. And that's basically like, I'm okay, the world's okay. I can trust myself. I can trust other people. I can build relationships. If we have a problem, we'll figure it out. It can be collaborative. That's like 
best case scenario. And then sometimes we don't have that good enough parenting. And so there's other, based on where there were gaps in the parenting, we might, or, or caregiving, we might develop particular conditioned patterns of perception and behavior that limit our ability to build relationships, to feel good about ourselves, to feel secure in the world. And so there's like particular patterns that have been uh, laid out with an attachment wounding. So they're secure. If you're, if you have the good fortune to have good enough parenting. And I also want to say what's fascinating to me too is that there's so many social conditions that impact a parent's ability to actually provide that. Right. There's a strong correlation of insecure attachment with poverty mm. and oppression, which just makes sense. Like if a parent, if both parents have to be out earning a living, two jobs or whatever is needed, of course they're not going to be available to provide that consistent, reliable presence and delight. So I just want to, I really want to frame that aspect and that there's a strong uh, relationship between our own attachment relationship with our caregivers and then what we pass down. It, it's a very sticky mental pattern mm. because these patterns and conditioning develop pre-verbally. And they, there's a lot of research, like at 18 months, they can already predict a child's attachment patterning through something called the strange situation experiment. And there's an 80% they can predict, okay, this is what their attachment is, 80% correlation with what they are as an adult wow. um, when they do an adult attachment interview. So it's really sticky because it's pre-verbal and it happens uh, as the sense of self is developed. So it gets very intertwined. So we can talk about what the kind of new technologies are for healing. Mm. But if you don't have that good enough parenting, there's what is called insecure attachment or insecure wounding. And there's two main categories of that uh, and, and a third that I'll describe. But the two main ways that can go is um, what's called dismissive attachment, which is for folks who just pretty consistently didn't get their attachment needs met, either weren't really protected, weren't delighted in, their parents weren't available emotionally or reassuring. Um, any one of those qualities was missing to some degree. And dismissing means basically what happens with that infant child and then as they grow up into adulthood is they turn off their conscious need for intimacy, for that kind of emotional connection. Mm. And the thing is, like, consciously they might say, I don't, it's not valuable to me, I don't need relationships like that. But, like, for young children, they've tested this, that you'll see it right in the kid. They'll just basically ignore the parent. Whether the parent comes or goes or a stranger comes, irrelevant to them. They look like they're just playing. They don't care. But actually, their stress hormones are, like, going through the roof. Mm. So they're, they're still registering that they have a need for security and protection. So that's dismissive. And then those folks have a really hard time building long-term relationships because they undervalue it and then don't act in ways to, to create. And that fundamentally they might think like, I'm okay, but the world is not okay. I can't trust the world. I can't trust other people. I have to just rely on myself. The second main category is anxious or fearful attachment wounding where basically 
I just want to say there's so much more complexity to all of this. Yeah. Uh, which I love to know because saying there's four, you know, three categories, you're like, that can't be right. So I do want to just frame that. But the basic pattern is that it was inconsistent attachment with a caregiver. So sometimes maybe the caregiver was available and present and attuned and reassuring. And then other times they totally weren't available. So what that sets up is this kind of fearful, anxious pattern of like, what can I do for the child and infant to get that need met? And so kind of being on edge all the time. And they believe I'm not okay. I need to do something different. I need to do whatever other people want so that I can get that safety need met. Um, And so that's called anxious. And there's maybe a big pattern that that looks like in adulthood is folks who we, you know, sometimes get like, we might have a pattern of kind of being clingy in relationships or people use like the word needy or something like this, even though I think that's problematic because we all have needs. (laughs) We should all have And maybe more dramatic in their relationships. And so there are certain patterns of how they build relationships that can be challenging. And then the third category that's evolved, has gotten more clarity about, is some people will use both of those, like shift quickly from being kind of clingy to like, I don't need anyone. And what they discovered with people like, like that is that it's um, when the caregiver is frightening or terrifying or this often abusing child or primary caregiver, then what happens is these two internal mechanisms of like, I need the caregiver to protect me, to be safe. So there's a movement towards the caregiver is then also met with, but the caregiver is terrifying Mm -hmm. and is the one who's going to hurt me. So there's a movement away and it's almost like a, a freeze for that person. So they're going towards in a way and it's chaotic. And that kind of basic pattern can play out in relationships. I love you. I hate you. Um, There's some research or belief that it's like some personality disorders are connected to that and each of the, the attachment patterns. That's fascinating. Thank you for explaining that. So you mentioned some new ideas about healing these attachment mm-hmm. wounds, and the, and you were saying that you've been working with contemplative practice to do that. Can you share about that? Yeah. So the insight, and I really first learned this from George Haas, and then more deeply dove in with a teacher named Dan Brown, who is a Mahamudra Bon Tibetan meditation teacher. What they, with colleagues, really identified was because the attachment wounding happens pre-verbally and is so intertwined with even the way that we perceive reality, right? Like as you just think about an infant comes in and all of that construction has to happen about perception and identifying things, Mm. sense of self and other. Doing talk therapy is pretty ineffective for uh, healing attachment because it, does, it didn't happen on the verbal level. Right. And so the insight was that contemplative practice, like visualization and meditations, go below that more cognitive, uh, intellectual or verbal level. So what 
started to be discovered is like actually doing contemplative practice over and over was like relaying a different perceptual uh, framework Mm. which could shift towards secure and that that was what actually could work and quite quickly quote unquote compared to 10 years of psychotherapy or something Mm -hmm. and I imagine that we as practitioners have seen that in other ways you know that how the meditation practice like can go to a deep level and actually shift our fundamental way of perceiving the world. And so this is like one example of how that can happen. And so with George Haas, he would guide me in a few practices that were primarily around tracking my thoughts and emotions around attachment relationships and developing basically equanimity with them. First of all, seeing that that was what was happening, tracking thoughts and the emotions that I was reacting out of. So for me, um, I ended up with a pretty complex attachment wounding, Um, was disorganized with my father, anxious with my mother, dismissive with um, this woman who would care took us because my mom was working so full time. So pretty complex. (laughs) And... uh, when I got into a relationship, it just made relationships really, really painful and complicated. Mm. Um, I say about my husband, like, I tried to break up with him so mm. many times when we started dating. and uh, But he was just persistent. And also, uh, yeah, he was persistent and kind of, mm-hmm. like, so confident. He was like, you don't want to break up with me. <laughs> <laughs> so we stuck at it. And at that time, I was starting to work with, with George on attachment. And and that framework, basically what he was like, here's an example of a practice that I had to do. I would get to the airport. We had a long distance thing. My husband, Doug, would be coming to pick me up. And what usually would happen is I would start a huge fight with him. And I would be like so distant and mean when we first got together. And then I would do the same thing as we were separating. I'd get in another Mm -hmm. big fight. And that's usually I'm like, this isn't working. We should totally break up. Like, I don't, I'm not really into this relationship. And so George, the instruction was tell Doug to pick you up 20 or 30 minutes later than you arrive. Go out to the curb and then you have to track what's happening. So the first thing that I would track was all these thoughts. Like, I don't really like this guy. What am I even doing here? I don't want to be in this relationship. Like all of these even like those are like, I hate him, right? Mm. And so as I started bringing attention to like, I hate him, I was like, that, that don't, that's not true. And George had sort of pointed out like, these are not true thoughts. So you have to see right. the thoughts that they're not true. Then go into your emotional body. Like what's actually triggering that thinking process? And I was doing this in my meditation in other ways too. So I, I was doing it in a formal practice and then this was like the bring it off the cushion And what I could feel was so much terror. It was basically terror that was underneath it, that this pushing away, this thinking about, like, I don't really like him, I don't want this, was a way of me avoiding the terror. And the terror is around abandonment, that if I fall in love with this person and begin to depend on them emotionally, they're just going to abandon me or they could at any point. And so it's not, it's much safer to just think I hate him 
than it is to fall in love and build intimacy. So then I had to just stand there and feel the terror. Mm. I actually track it in my body and try to work with it with equanimity. Can I just be with the terror without reacting to it and uh, not going into the thinking? So it was a very firm practice. Mm. And Doug would show up, drive up with a car. And George also had a list of things that I should do. Uh-huh. <laughs> he was like, okay, most people, when they're in an intimate relationship, they would say, they would hug the person and say, I love you. I'm so happy to see you. And so I would literally like play that on my mind when he gets her. I'm going to say, I love you. I'm so happy to see you. And I'm going to hug him. And I just played out, played out. And so when he got there, I mean, it was probably incredibly awkward. It felt really awkward inside <laughs> of me. Hi, Doug. I missed you. <laughs> There's like some. And the, the theory with that was like, by reaching out for connection, I would actually get the attachment need met. He would hug me back and say, you miss me. And that would actually soothe the terror mm. through the connection rather than going to disconnection. So that was one kind of clear example of how I was using my meditation practice to rework that pattern. of what um, I love that you brought up, you know, this distinction between working through cognitive modes and how that may not get your or verbal modes, mm -hmm. you know, right. that may not reach this um, since it's all formed pre-verbally. I think that's a huge insight and um, also makes me think about, I know you've also done a lot of work. We're working with the body mm -hmm. and you just mentioned it there too and kind of feeling that terror and things like that. I wonder if you can say more about the role of the body you know, in practice in general, in the mind, um, what you've learned about that. Yeah, I think this is huge, a huge aspect of trauma and emotional healing and just like integration of um, practice and insight into our day-to-day -day life. I think we have to be working with the body. Uh, and a lot of, I think this has been a big trend for me. Like I did a lot of yoga also as a younger person then I worked quite a bit with um, Reggie Ray, who's a Tibetan-trained teacher. His teacher was uh, Chogyam Trungpa. And he's very, very focused on body-based practice. And what I've learned since then also is that it, there's a lot coming out of the Tibetan yoga tradition and some of the theories around um, the nadis and how the central channel and how we hold basically modern language we'd say like traumas in our bodies mm -hmm. um, similar to like somatic experiencing and peter levine's theories of uh, trauma healing so this is in the tibetan system is this called the subtle body yes is that yeah we've talked about it on the show in a couple different interviews so if listeners want to okay. go back and check it out yeah great yeah because I, I reggie was the first person as a meditation teacher and tibetan teacher that i was introduced to it in and then mm -hmm. you know i just read not that long ago, um, Sokni Rinpoche's book, mm -hmm. 
open heart, open mind. And he talks about the subtle body in there and his own fears and panic and how he had to actually go in and work it out through his body. Right. So that's basically what Reggie's practices taught me how to do, was to really come into my body, actually sort of unwind these contracted historical, physical or energetic patterns through breath work and through attention, meditation, and deep, deep, deep relaxation, release practices. And I also did, like I said, somatic experiencing therapy, which has a similar, you track the emotional pattern and then release the energy in certain ways. So I believe it's totally central to healing. And yes, especially attachment. What I've come to, so what I described of that practice with George, I would say it was like the first step for me. And now I have a whole other set of meditation, contemplative practices around attachment, which I can describe. But I'd say the primary thing for me is actually developing a visceral, deep felt sense of security and unconditional love or goodness. Like in the Tibetan tradition, we call it like Buddha nature, like actually fully trusting in my Buddha nature and trusting life, which feels somatic and visceral. That's what I actually rely on in my day to day. So the nervous system is just settled into, it's okay. I'm okay. I'm going to be okay. The world is okay, fundamentally. And I can respond to it in the ways that I need to, to get my needs met. Yeah. That's kind of making me think of um, your your interest in the natural world and environment and the work you've done around that and kind of um, part of the way you describe that of like trusting in mm-hmm. life and yourself. And um, I, I would assume that extends into kind of the natural world. Yeah, it feels so grounding and and supportive. And I know you've done a lot of work too and like working with earth grounding practices and also nature-based practices. So can you say how that weaves into? Yeah. Yeah. I love how you're, I just, I love that connection you're bringing. So a lot of Reggie's, he does a practice called earth breathing too, which the first time he taught it, I was like, oh, this is it. This is it for me. In the, this practice is you go, you let your awareness actually drop into the earth underneath you and then deeper, deeper, deeper into the earth. And my understanding is that a lot of this he, he learned from Maladoma Somme, who's an African teacher, a spiritual practitioner, indigenous um, teacher. And I, if I conceive of it now, it's almost like we're healing our attachment wounding with the earth, with mm. this place mm-hmm. that we live in, um, or I am in my particular cultural situation. I was not raised with any sense of place, uh, earth connection, geography. And and then as a white person in America, settler, colonialist history. Yeah, I've been doing actually a ton of ancestry work, which probably is all intertwined in this for me. Mm-hmm. Irish and English, but actually I found on my dad's side, most of my ancestors came over like in the 1600s to Massachusetts and Rhode Island. And then they were, um, they just followed the frontier, ended up in Oregon in the 1800s. So 
And then my mom's mostly Irish and, you know, just thinking about the ways that they were treated by the English, the oppression, pulled off their land, famine, came to the U.S. during the famine. So there's just a clear disconnection from place and earth. And even when I look at my ancestry and my father's side, there's there's almost not a single generation that lived in the same place twice. Like, each generation moved. And I just think there's some connection between that and maybe, and maybe what we might call is like healing our attachment with earth, with place, with community. That's part of the violence and chaos and confusion and lack of ease that I live with. And I think a lot of white people in the U.S. live inside that culture. Hmm. Yeah. So the earth practice is like one way that I try to reconnect and then bringing the more than human world back into my, into deep relationship. Like I can trust you. You can trust me. And you do that through kind of visualization practices mainly? Yeah. I do a lot of that earth descent and then I just will use it all the time. It's like when I remember going, letting myself, and for me, as soon as I do that, it's like the whole nervous system settles and relaxes and yeah. Then I actually go outside for nature practice. I just go outside. Um, It was strong influence for me within that as a teacher or writer named Bill Plotkin, who has some particular nature practices to reconnect and um, for a period, I was doing like a dawn practice, go outside and just sit at dawn in the same place every day, just sit. So it's basically like doing open awareness with the eyes open in the same place every day. Or so it's, there's a practice called sit spot. And we'll do that with the teens. We did a number of wilderness retreats with the teens. Mm-hmm. We brought in a lot of this, but basically you just go to the same place and you just sit and that's your meditation. But it's not just my own feelings and thoughts. It's incorporating the animals, the sounds, the trees, and the, and the change that's happening and actually getting to know your place. And sometimes now I think about it, I was like, it's almost like so rude that I before would just go to a place and just ignore most of my neighbors, you know, mm. like the birds and the animals and all those things. Like, And we behave that way with other humans too, actually. Right. Yeah. Right. So much of what you're sharing, I think, is speaking to, um, it, yeah, I appreciate that you brought up the experience of whiteness in the U.S. and this kind of disconnection from land. I feel like there's also a deep disconnection from our bodies, um, from those lineages as well, which just plays into so much of what you were saying. It's so much of reversing that is needed for healing. Um, I think not only these attachment wounds that you were describing, but just a lot of the ways that that's played out um, in the way we treat others, the way we treat nature, animals, you know, exploitative mm. systems and all of this. So, and then also you brought up ancestry work and I'm thinking of kind of intergenerational trauma. You know, you're speaking about your own traumas, but I think there's a lot more awareness now of how that is perpetuated through generations, not mm-hmm. just culturally, but also now we know biologically through epigenetics, things can be translated. So I don't know, I'll just throw those things out if you have any reflections on those topics. Yeah. Yeah, actually what I think is is really interesting is 
even if we have insecure attachment as infants and children, we can become what's called earned secure, earned secure. So we can actually repattern our minds and our perceptions so that we act secure as adults. Mm. And one of the criteria for that, one of the ways that you can see that that has happened for someone is their own ability to see where the patterns came from. So it's asking questions about, you know, why do you think your parents acted in the ways that they did? And being able to frame, well, you know, so for me, my mom's mother died when she was four. Mm. Um, And it's totally not explained. Her father went on to get married to someone else and had seven more children. And my mom was the oldest of the 10. So there's just, you can just see. Mm -hmm. My father's a little bit more of a mystery. Unfortunately, I don't know all. So I have to kind of fill in the gaps there, but I can imagine aspects of his upbringing, his family and his lineage. Um, Yeah. And with his lineage, part of the gaps I fill in is like being settler colonialists, like from the 1600s in the United States, what atrocities and violence they uh, witnessed and perpetuated and how that impacts bodies and lineages. So anyway, I just think one thing that's interesting is like healing attachment. Part of it is understanding the historical context and generational traumas and and why people act in the ways they do and having basically understanding and compassion and forgiveness for those. So you mentioned maybe some other contemplative practices for healing attachment. Is there anything else you want to share there? Yeah. So the other practice I've been mostly focused on now the last number of years, I learned from Dan Brown, from the meditation teacher, Dan Mm -hmm. Brown, that he developed with a group of colleagues. Um, And Dan's also a therapist, psychotherapist. So his practice is actually reimagining ideal parents that meet all of your attachment wounds and needs. And you do it as basically a meditation. So you might meet with a therapist who like guides it based on your particular gaps. It's a recorded practice. And then you listen to it and like do that meditation for the week or two weeks. Go back, get a guided practice again, particularly focused on what your gaps were. And you develop this long-term relationship with these ideal parents. So letting go of your parents uh, who are perfectly suited to you, meet all your needs. It's amazing. It's almost like developing imaginary friends, right, imaginary right. parents. And how, I mean, the research on it is like unbelievably effective that Dan has done on this technique. And it's totally changed my life. It's unbelievable. And so even in, um, in moments of real challenge or struggle, I'll bring I'll bring up my ideal parents. They'll like sit right next to me. Um, in fact, I was teaching a retreat not that long ago and a number of things about it made it pretty challenging. I could feel all this insecurity and doubt coming up, uh, particularly when I was doing the interviews with folks. And so my ideal parents were just sitting right next to me in my mind, hand on my leg or my arm and just saying, you know, we love you completely. You don't have to do anything to earn our love. 
You don't have to be a good teacher. You don't have to say the perfect thing. You don't have to be wise. It's not going to change our love or opinion of you in any way. And just that is like, okay, I can settle in and then be fully present for the person in front of me. So that's a practice that has been transformative. And now I've been working with students and offering that kind of guided practice for people. That's awesome. I love how it just leverages the power of our minds to construct our realities, right? Which is, in fact, what we do anyway. So it's like, why not make it what you need and, and what will serve? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And it also, again, I don't know. I'm way more familiar with Theravadan tradition than Tibetan. But there's some aspects to it that feel like, I don't know if consciously or unconsciously, Dan was pulling from some of the Tibetan practices, like the refuge tree it's mm -hmm. like and um reflecting on your lineage and like the loving support from the whole lineage of teachers some of those and even the deity practices that we do of like with vajrasattva and tara and kuan yin all of these different deity practices that are more in the mahayana tradition it's almost like that but using that same practice because when i do those practices i feel the same thing i feel this like deep soothing in my system. Like I've got support out there in the world. I'm not in it alone. I'm loved. going to be okay. It's almost like he transferred that wisdom into a modern way of conceiving of it. And then it also makes me think about like, oh, I wonder, sometimes I wonder if Nundro is actually like a attachment and trauma healing practices, psychological practices that kind of get the practitioner into a place where they feel secure and loved and have a refuge so that they can then do the later practices. I think also, um, I'm thinking of John McCransky has done a lot of this work too, mm -hmm. in terms of translating um, from the Tibetan guru yoga tradition and that kind of um, receiving the love and blessings like from these deities into, you know, a more secular or modern form where you use moments with people in your life it doesn't even have to be the whole relationship with the person since relationships are so complex but moments of just pure connection or acceptance or love and just like fostering those and steeping in those so it sounds like a really similar process it, it's amazing mm -hmm. how powerful they can be yeah completely i love john mccransky's meditations and that's one where it's like so visceral i, I love his metta and then I would say, so even, you know, those are kind of these very targeted, I feel like brilliant translations and practices that are coming more from Tibetan tradition. But within the Theravadan tradition, doing the Brahma Viharas and the, the Four Immeasurables, I think those are playing a similar role, like basically really touching into unconditional metta, loving kindness, compassion, joy and equanimity. In fact, I have like played with mapping those onto the qualities of secure parenting. And it oh, wow. Totally, you know, the, the metta and attuning and protection, the soothing and reassuring of compassion, the delighting. Sympathetic joy, yeah. And the equanimity of just supporting, tracking that, like, I don't have control and this is their life and how that quality comes in. That's a great connection. Mm -hmm. So that's like, I've been teaching a lot about that and thinking a lot about that. Because actually, even when I started doing this attachment work with Dan, despite my different intensities of my childhood, um, he did, he assessed where I was at and 
uh, so amazing. He's like, well, you know, he laid it out, like, basically, you're totally disorganized. But he's like, you know, we could probably clean this up in about three months. Wow. <laughs> Which I was like, oh, my God, yeah, let's just clean this up. <laughs> and I really credit that to the amount of metta and mindfulness, the metacognition, but also the deep metta. Like, I did one three-month retreat where I basically just did loving kindness. Mm. And I think that started to lay the foundation of being able to actually shift the pattern in a deep way. So it's also there in the Theravana. Yeah. Yeah. So I know we're coming up on our time, but I just wanted to um, get your thoughts. You've spent so much of your career as a Dharma teacher working with youth and teens. And I just wanted to hear your perspective on that population, that community, maybe compared to working with adults or just what do you think are the particular mm -hmm. opportunities and challenges in working with youth? Yeah. Um, it's way more fun. That's <laughs> the primary yeah. thing. Yeah, I absolutely love working with teenagers and youth, young adults. So I mostly see opportunities. The opportunities that I've seen that I've witnessed is, for one thing, it feels like youth are much closer to that kind of unprotected heart mm. and also the flexibility of mind. Mm -hmm. So and we know this with all the brain science of what's happening at that age of like pruning and myelating and all the things that are happening. Um, but I feel like I can see it, how quickly they can t have an insight. Uh, and that can shift. Like you can just tell it can shift a whole trajectory of a life. I've often thought about it as like almost like this door is open at that time because they're also sort of questioning what their parents taught them or their culture. Like I love that about how teens are rebelling and questioning. And so it's like everything's on the table. And to be able to bring in these practices at that time of, uh, you know, you can find out for yourself. Like you, you can look into your own heart and mind and body and feel what your values are, what your purpose is, what you want to do with your life through these practices. Um, it just feels like they can make really good use of it and it can change things dramatically. So that's really meaningful and fun to see the quick change. And then they also like just be they're that softness, like I say sometimes, like they have less crust on their hearts. Mm -hmm. So just like the amount of kindness, openness, vulnerability, just coming into expressing who they are so quickly is really fun to see. And then, of course, they have like so much energy and creativity. Like so we, have, like we have dance parties and yeah, it's just so fun to see how they see the world and how they're thinking. And yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to bring it back to when you said your own experience, one of the first things that you remember on teen retreat is the kindness mm -hmm. among just the vibe. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you said that, I, it really resonated because I've, I've had the tremendous good fortune to have some retreats with you as well and with uh, Ivy Me. And that is absolutely the environment that you've created in, mm -hmm. in those spaces too. So you've really carried that forward and it's so... Um, powerful to be in a context of kindness and acceptance and love and just what that does for everyone who's in that environment, just allowing people to show up, you know, as their full selves and their best selves. So I just want to thank you for the work that you do. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so happy. And it's been, I also want to say that we, you create that as a staff person. And I'm also quite protective of who we invite into those spaces. Just people who I know are going to hold that that space for youth. So, 
Yeah. Well, this has been so rich and fun and um, maybe we can have a part two sometime because I feel like we could go on for hours. But thank you so much for spending the time and sharing all these wonderful insights with us. Uh, thank you, Wendy. So fun. Yeah, totally appreciate it. This season of Mind and Life is supported by the Academy for the Love of Learning, dedicated to awakening the natural love of learning in people of all ages. Episodes are edited and produced by me and Phil Walker, and music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. And if something in this conversation sparked insight for you, let us know. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org, where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. If you value these conversations, please consider supporting the show. You can make a donation at mindandlife.org under support. Any amount is so appreciated, and it really helps us create this show. Thank you for listening.